I'm going to ask you if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the 15th chapter of the book of Luke. And by now, it should be no surprise where we're headed to in the Bible. Uh, four weeks into a study on the parable of what we have forever called the parable of the prodigal son. I'm going to tell you right up front this morning that we are going to say some of the same things that we have said for the last several weeks. In some capacity, you've heard many of these things in this series already. But I want you to understand that I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will help me communicate today in a way that helps all of us get what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us. If you followed Christ for any length of time in your life, you call yourself a Christian, especially those of you that grew up in church or have been associated with the Bible Belt Christianity, Southern Christianity, those of you that have been a part of a holiness strand of Christianity, whether it's Pentecostalism or some form of holiness Christianity, I will say to you that this could be one of the most profound studies of your Christian life. I believe that because it has been a revelation to me. I fit the criteria that I have just stated for you. And I don't know that I have truly understood, appreciated, lived in an understanding of the gospel the way I have over the last few weeks. And I just pray that God helps me communicate it so that you get it in a way that the Holy Spirit is helping me to get it. Most people who read and study the parable of the prodigal son concentrate completely on the character of the younger son. They concentrate on his repentance and on the father's forgiveness. And I will tell you that most of my preaching from this parable in the last 19 years has been to, um, to magnify the grace of God to this wayward son in order to call people back to Jesus Christ and His love for them. And that is part of the story. But what we have done is missed the most important component of the story when we focus on the younger son. Because instead of the story being about one lost son, or we have called the parable of the prodigal son, it is in reality a parable about two sons who are both alienated from the father, who have both assaulted the unity of the family. And Jesus' intent in telling this parable is to contrast the son that left home, we have called the lover of prostitutes, and the son that stayed there, what we have called the elder brother, his intent is to contrast those sons for the sake of his two listeners. He has a crowd of tax collectors and sinners, and he has a crowd of Pharisees. One would be more relating to the elder, to the, to the younger son. Uh, one would be more relating to the elder brother. But Jesus is wanting to compare and prostitutes the man that is ruining his family, shaming his father, and sleeping with prostitutes so that when we see him, we can say, yes, there is someone who is spiritually lost. But the point that Jesus is trying to make is that the elder son is lost too. Jesus didn't really tell this parable of the tax collectors and sinners. They were not the one accusing him. The ones accusing him were the Pharisees. And so the moral of this story is less about the son that we don't argue about. We know he was spiritually lost. And it was more about the elder brother who stayed at home. And from understanding the position of the elder brother in this parable, there are some revelations about God. There are some revelations about the love of God. There are revelations about sin and what it means to be really lost. 
One of those is a startling new understanding of lostness. What are the signs of that understanding of lostness? And how can we recognize it in ourselves so we can change? So there's a new revelation of what it means to be lost in this parable. There are signs of that condition of lostness. The lostness on this side of the table. The elder brother kind of lostness. And we need to recognize them so that we can correct those issues in our life. And we need to figure out what we're going to do about that condition when we, once we identify it in our heart and our lives. I want us to start with that startling new understanding of lostness. I, I just, I don't, know, I don't know how to say it. God help me. I, I want to get this out of my head and what God is doing in me. And I want, I want the Holy Spirit to challenge you. I, I don't want this to be another lesson. I, I want the Holy Spirit to search your heart in such a way that, that we're challenged today to see the gospel in a brand new light. You see, the elder brother knew that the day that the younger son came home, was probably the most joyous day in the father's life. I, I want us to look there in about the 25th verse of Luke 15. The scripture says, this is, this is midways through the parable, the younger son that is left and squandered all the father gave him, all of his inheritance, with prostitutes and wild living, has come home and the father puts a new robe on him, a new ring on him, welcomes him back into the family. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all of these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Do you, do you see the disrespect in that statement in a culture that was very, it was very important to honor authority. It was very important to honor your elders, especially a father. And he looks at his father and he says, look. It was like, look you, look at me. There's this sign of disrespect in the brother that was supposed to be the religious, good, moral brother. And yet you can hear the anger in his voice, look. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. Be, But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. When the scripture says that the father killed the fattened calf, it was an enormously extravagant act on the father's half in a culture where eating meat was considered a delicacy. The older son realized the father was full of ecstatic joy. He understood the level that the father was going to, to celebrate the son's coming home. But he refused to go in to the biggest feast that his father had ever put on. It was a remarkable, deliberate act of disrespect against the father. And he was saying, by being unwilling to go into the feast, I won't be a part of this family. And in reality, he was disrespecting the headship and the authority of his father. So the father had to go out from the feast to plead with the elder brother to come in. 
In the same way that he had to go out into the yard and wrap a robe around his younger son and convince the younger son. The younger son was so overwhelmed by shame, he had to be convinced to come into the feast. So the father went out and made him aware of grace and invited him to the table of salvation. And now the father has gone out of the house in the same way and he's having to invite the elder brother to the table of salvation. But the elder brother refuses to come in. And I I need you to understand what Jesus is saying to His listeners. Nobody argued that the the tax collector and sinner or the younger brother needed to come to the table of salvation. But nobody ever thought that the brother that stayed at home had to come to the table of salvation. Nobody ever thought that the elder brother could be lost. You see, the father in the parable is a symbol of God. The table in the parable is the symbol of the feast of salvation. And the fact that the, the father went outside and had to invite the elder brother to the table, told all of the people that were listening to that day, the elder son was as lost as the younger brother, and it would have been remarkably astounding to all of those that were listening. I mean, you can almost hear them gasp as the story ends, because Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, you are very religious, but you are very lost. And I am inviting you to the same table of grace that I invited the lover of prostitutes to. So what kept the elder brother out? He says it in verse 29. He he gives us the insight into why he refused to come in when the father went out and pleaded with him to come to the table. You see, the dangerous thing about religious people is that when you start talking about lostness to religious people, their first thought is, that's not me. It's not an argument over here. They understand that. They know that. Everybody understands that. But over here, when you talk about lostness, our first inclination as the church is to assume that the Holy Spirit is trying to touch somebody else's shoulder because I've been in church all my life, I've read the Bible, I know the jargon, and I'm a moral person. And because of that, we miss the point. The elder brother said in verse 29, he didn't come in because he said, all of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed. The good son was not lost because of something outside of his obedience. He was lost because of his obedience. He was lost because of his good behavior. So it is not his sin that is keeping him out. It is his righteousness that is keeping him out. Listen friend, the gospel is not about religion or irreligion. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about morality or immorality. And to understand that astonished these religious people that were there. And it astonished the tax collectors and sinners. Because all of their life they have been told to follow God is following a religious code. To follow God is keeping a list of do's and don'ts. The Pharisees believed that with all their heart. They didn't understand grace. They didn't understand obeying God out of love. They understood obeying God out of duty. And so religion was... It was religion. Religion was morality. And Jesus is coming along through this parable and saying, the gospel of the kingdom that I'm coming to you is different. It is not religion nor irreligion. It is not morality nor immorality. It is something completely altogether different than anything you've ever heard. It was confusing to those people there. And 
For those of you that have grown up in church all of your life, especially the most strict of churches, it may be confusing to you today as well. So, how could I say this morning that the older son was lost because of his good behavior? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It, it, you sin when you put yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. In the same way that the, the younger son tried to gain control of the father by leaving, the elder brother tried to gain control of the father by staying. And he felt like he could earn a place at the table by being good. And when the younger son was a sinner and a lover of prostitutes, and he came to the table without being good, it shattered the, it, the ideal of religion in the heart of the elder brother. He could not understand why the father would do such things because in his mind he earned a spot at the table by his own good behavior and in reality he was sinning because he was becoming his own savior. If I had a title for this morning's service it would be the older brother, the self-salvation project. Because I really believe much of American Christianity has missed Jesus, has missed grace, have missed the gospel, and we go to church for the wrong reasons. We read the Bible for the wrong reasons. We worship for the wrong reasons because we have a fear-based morality. We don't love God. We don't serve God because of love for Him. We serve God because of fear of what will happen if we don't. Maybe the line is so thin that you don't understand it. Maybe the line is so thin that you don't see it, but it is so profound. It affects who we are and why we do what we do. The younger brother wanted the father's wealth, but not the father. So he got it by leaving home, and he broke the moral rules. It becomes evident by the end that the elder brother wanted selfish control of the father's wealth as well. He was very unhappy with the father's use of possessions, the robe, the ring, the calf. But while the younger brother got control by taking his stuff and running away, the elder brother got control by staying at home and being good. He felt that now he had the right to tell his father what to do with his possessions because he had obeyed him perfectly. So there are two ways to try to become your own Savior and Lord. There are two ways to ascend the ladder of the self-salvation project. One is by breaking all the rules and being bad and doing it your way. And one is by keeping all the laws and being good and expecting God to owe you something because you've been good. If I can be so good that God has to answer my prayer and give me a good life and take me to heaven, then all I do, I may be looking to Jesus to be my helper and my rewarder, but He is not my Savior. This is the offense of the gospel, friend. This is what bothers Americans who are self-made people. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we've taken that American ideal into our religion and we've turned Christianity into a meritorious, a merit-based, works-based religion where we feel like God owes us something and in the process we are becoming our own Savior by trusting in our own good works. The difference between a religious person and a true Christian is that a religious person obeys God to get control over God and things from God, but the Christian obeys just to get God. Just to love God and to please God and to draw closer to Him. 
Some of you may not know Elizabeth Elliot, but I challenge you to read anything you can get your hands on. Elizabeth Elliot was married to Jim Elliot, the, the, the missionary as a young man who died as a martyr in the jungles of Ecuador giving his life. I've read his diaries. Phenomenal young man of God who died an early premature death. Elizabeth had to reconcile her faith with her sorrow. And she told a parable. It's not in the Bible, but it was a parable she told, supposing a day that Jesus was having a conversation with His disciples, proving a point that so many of us serve God because of what the end result will be and not just serve Him for Him. She, she told the parable just saying, suppose Jesus was talking with His disciples one day and, and He said to them, follow Me. And as they followed along, all of the disciples, He said, I'd like for you to carry a stone for Me. And Peter, being the practical person that he is, he, he reached down and he picked up the smallest stone that he could get and put it in his pocket so that it wouldn't be labor, laborious and burdensome. And, and he goes on about the day. And at the end, uh, about lunchtime that day, Jesus says uh, he wants to turn their stone they picked up into bread. And so the one that had bigger stones automatically obviously got bigger lunches. And because Peter picked up a small stone, he had a small lunch. After lunch was over, Jesus said, again, follow me. I'd like for you to carry a stone for me. And so Peter said, well, i got the hang of this now. So he goes over and picks up a boulder. And while they're walking through the mountainside, all these other people have small stones or, or medium size, and Peter has this big boulder, and he can't wait till dinner time because he knows what's going to happen. And he struggles and he toils with this large boulder all day. And when it gets supper time, they come to a stream, and Jesus says, Everybody throw their stones into the water. Now follow me. And Peter is angry. He is confused. And Jesus, sensing their anger and their confusion, He asked the question, Who were you carrying the stone for? Were you carrying the stone for you? Or were you carrying it for me? Because if you're carrying it for me, it doesn't matter what I ask you to do with it. If you're really carrying it for me. Are you in this for you? Or are you in this for me? You see, elder brothers expect their goodness to pay off. Elder brothers think that we can control our lives by our performance. He redefines lostness by telling this story. And so I think it's important that I needed to know this. I know the church at large needs to know this. What are some of the signs of an elder brother lostness? so that we can identify them in our lives and deal with them. You see, some people are complete elder brothers. They go to church, they obey the Bible, but they do it out of expectation that God owes them. Then they never understood the biblical gospel at all. Many Christians know the gospel of grace. They understand it's by grace that we're saved so that no one can boast. But yet in our hearts, we have an elder brotherish mentality in our hearts. And while we understand the gospel of grace, we go back to the default mode of self-salvation. Let me, let me show you what an elder brother attitude looks like. What the self-salvation journey looks like. Somebody that has an elder brother syndrome Number one, there's a deep anger in their life. Verse 28, 
when the son came home, the elder brother became angry, the scripture says, and he refused to go in. Elder brothers believe that God owes them a comfortable good life if they try hard to live up to the standards, and they have tried hard, and when something doesn't come through for them, they get angry. So they say, my life ought to be going really well. And when it doesn't go well, they become bitter at God. But they are forgetting Jesus. He lived the greatest life that anyone could ever live. He was more moral, more just, more pure. And He suffered more terribly than any of us. Living to the standard and being moral and good and following all of the codes, does if we are Christians, Christ-like, and if Jesus is our pattern, then His pattern shows us being the best you can be does not guarantee a good life in return. It does not guarantee there won't be any dark clouds. It does not guarantee there won't be any troubles. Here's what happens. People that have an elder brother syndrome feel like they have been good. They stayed at home. When all the lovers of prostitutes and all those bad people over there left, I stayed at home. I read the Bible. I memorized Scripture. I paid my tithe when it cost me dearly. And then when somebody in their family gets sick and they call out to God to heal them, they get angry at God because God didn't respond. And their response is just like the elder brother. I've done all of these things all of these years for you. Why did this person in my family have to die with cancer? You know what that is? That says I did all of these things all of these years to get control over you and when you didn't respond the way I wanted to, I couldn't control you. I got angry on the inside. So what that means is the elder brother was never serving God for God. He was serving God for himself, which means he was becoming his own Savior, not trusting Jesus to be his Savior. Either I'm really preaching to you and it's getting very deep or you're not getting this at all. It's either, or it's so real, we don't know what to say. I'm just telling you, I'm guilty. I, I, I have been this 20 years ago. I was this. But I need a fresh revelation of what the gospel is. So that this doesn't become me or I no longer am this elder brother. They're riddled with deep anger. Another characteristic of this individual is there's a joyless mechanical obedience. Verse 29, I've been slaving for you, he said. Elder brothers obey God as a means to an end. God is not their end. Their end objective is to satisfy their own needs and they serve God as a means to an end, as a way to get the things they really love. Of course, obedience to God is sometimes extremely hard, but elder brothers find obedience always joyless, mechanical, and slavish because they're not obeying out of love to the Father. They're obeying out of duty to the Father, hoping it will earn them something in the end, whether it be heaven or healing or financial blessing or whatever. Their obedience to God is in turn for something else. And when things go bad in their life, their first thought is to think, what have I done to God to make Him mad? Because their relationship with God is about joyless, mechanical obedience. There's a story about an MBA program. It's a very reputable MBA program in the United States. The guy that was teaching the program to these future business executives said, 
the world needs honest business practices. And he gave them two reasons for honest business practices. Number one, he said, we need honest business practices because if you lie or cheat, you may get caught and that's bad for business. Number two, if people in the company know they're working for an honest company, it will boost morale and make employees feel above the competition. In other words, tell the truth because it's to your own advantage. But what happens when telling the truth is not to your advantage? What happens when it becomes easy and it pays off to cheat and lie? You see, what this MBA program was advocating was a fear-based morality. We have to be honest for fear of the repercussions if we don't. Don't be honest out of merit. Don't be honest out of the fact that, it, that God wants you to or whatever. And that's the same way with Christianity today. We have created a fear-based morality. Honesty born out of fear does nothing to root out the real cause of evil in the world. The real cause of evil in the world is the radically self-centeredness of the human heart. And when I obey God out of fear of what God's going to do or not do to me, then I'm not really rooting out the selfishness in my own heart I'm actually strengthening the selfishness in my own heart because the only reason I'm obeying is for selfish gain older brothers are only being moral for their own benefit when they live under a fear based morality There's another story about a king I wanted to pull out stories this morning to try to, to use parables to help us get this into our heart there's a story about another king and a poor gardener came to him and he grew a, a beautiful carrot. I mean, it was the largest carrot that the kingdom had ever seen. And he, he brought it and, and laid it at the king's feet and he gave it to the king. It was a sincere gift to the king. And the king, seeing the sincerity of the man's gift and his skill, said to him, this is the, the most beautiful carrot I've ever seen in my life. I own a garden next to yours. A large garden. It was one of the most beautiful gardens in the kingdom. And the king said, would you, would you take care of my garden as well? Would you live off of the proceeds and the fruit from my garden? You'd do so well. Would you take over? Well, one of the noblemen in the king's court saw that and he thought, wow, if that's what you get for a carrot, wait till the king sees this. And he goes and gets one of his most prized black stallions. And he brings it to the king. And he says, king... This is the best black stallion in the kingdom. I breed horses. I know the market. This is the best one there is. He gave it to the king. And the king, being a wise, discerning man, looked at the nobleman and said, the gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Why do we serve God? Have we fallen in love with Jesus? Do we understand that the grace of God has invited us all to the table? Listen, friend, I grew up in a culture that was full of holiness restrictions and standards. And my objective this morning is not to criticize the holy restrictions and standards. Oh, that I could be the person that my grandfather was who didn't understand in this world. He didn't relate to this world. He lived by a code of restrictions and standards, but he did it as a demonstration of love to the Father. But those who have come after him, all we saw was the restrictions and standards and didn't understand the love where they began. And so we have assumed that the way to the Father was to hold up to the restrictions and the standards and we have missed the gospel in the process. The gospel that says 
whether you hold to the restriction, whether you hold to the code and you meet the standard, or you don't, you're all invited to the table. Because the lie in you meeting the standard is that you can't. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.20 For our righteousness is as filthy rags. Your best moral day is not good enough. We need a Savior. And there are some of us that have served God all our lives, have made our life, our Christian journey, the self-salvation project because we're doing it on our own and we've never stopped long enough to trust the only God who can save us from ourselves. There's a coldness to younger brother types. In verse 30, he says, This son of yours, the older son was not even willing to own his own brother. Elder brothers are too disdainful of others unlike themselves to be effective in outreach because elder brothers pride themselves in their doctrinal and moral purity which unavoidably leaves them feeling superior to those who don't know these things or who do not live up to the standards. And oftentimes, elder brothers have this mentality because of coldness to, to younger brothers or to the lovers of prostitutes. We, there's a classism and a racism and all kinds of prejudices that slip into you. You show me a Christian who has a degree of prejudice in their heart towards some group of people and I will show you a person who has an elder brother self-salvation syndrome in their lives. Coldness to younger brother types. A lack of assurance of the father's love is another symptom of the self-salvation of the elder brother. He said, you never threw me a party. As long as you're trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through your goodness, you will never be sure you've been good enough. What are the signs? Every time something goes wrong in your life, you wonder if it's a punishment from God. Another sign is this unresolvable guilt. You can never get away from what you've asked God to forgive you. You're not, you haven't done it in years, but you, you can't get away from the guilt. You can't be sure you've repented deeply enough, so you beat yourself up over and again in what you did. Lastly, there's this lack of intimacy with God in your prayer life. You may pray a lot of prayers, but there's no sense of love in your prayer. And one thing I found out about elder brothers is while there's this sense of duty that marks their Christian life, most elder brothers are prayerless. And the ones who pray, it's dry. Because they have no assurance of the Father's love. So the conversation is not as one who's in love with another. It's all business. All petitions. It's all surface. There's no intimacy, no deep communion, because there's no love and assurance. It's dry religious code. It's resolutions and edicts and creeds. It's not like two people who were in love, embraced with passion and grace. The final sign of that elder brother syndrome is an unforgiving and judgmental spirit. The elder brother does not want the father to forgive the younger brother. 
It is impossible to forgive someone if you feel that I would never be as bad as they are. You have to be something of an elder brother to refuse to forgive. Timothy Keller in the book The Prodigal God makes a startling observation. He pastors in Manhattan. And he says that he has watched, and I, I, I believe this with all my heart to be true, he has watched young people that have grown up in churches in the heartland of America move out of those rural areas in the heartland who grew up in churches that were controlled by the elder brother syndrome. They left those elder, those, those elder brother churches, that mentality. They moved to metropolitan ideas thinking that the elder brother code was Christianity and they left the elder brother, they left their Christianity and they've come to the metropolitan America and his assessment is we have let the elder brothers turn a generation into younger brothers. And we have a whole generation that doesn't want God and they don't want Christianity because when the preacher gets up to invite people to come to Christ, they automatically assume that we're inviting them to this joyless, dutiful obedience. It's not the gospel. Because somebody that understands the gospel can keep every letter of the law in the process but enjoy the journey because it's not being done to earn God's favor. It's being done because you have God's favor already. But what can you and I do about this spiritual condition in our lives? First, we have to see the uniqueness of the gospel. Jesus ends the parable with the lostness of the older brother in order to get across the point that this position over here of the older brother is a more dangerous spiritual condition than the one over there because that one is easily identifiable. This one is easy to live a lie. The younger brother knew he was alienated from the father, but the elder brother did not. If you tell moral religious people who are trying to be good, trying to obey the Bible so that God will bless them, that they're alienated from God, most of them will get offended. Because if you know you're sick, you'll go to the doctor. If you don't know you're sick, you just die. Moralistic religion works on the principle, I obey, therefore God accepts me. The gospel works on the principle, I am accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. Can I say that again? Moralistic religion works on the principle, I obey, therefore God accepts me. The gospel works on the principle, I am accepted by God through Christ Jesus, therefore I obey. There are two radically even opposite dynamics, yet both sets of people sit in church together, both pray, both obey the Ten Commandments, but for radically different reasons. Because they do these things for radically different reasons, they produce radically different results. One produces anger, joyless compliance, superiority, insecurity, and a condemning spirit. The other, slowly but surely, produces contentment, joy, humility, poise, and a forgiving spirit. Unless a person and a congregation knows the difference between general religiosity and the true gospel, 
people will constantly fall into moralism and elder brotherishness. And if you call young brothers to come and receive Christ and live for Him without making this distinction clear, they will automatically think you're inviting them to become elder brothers. And it's why so many have rejected the church. Second, not only do we need to understand the uniqueness of the gospel, we need to understand the vulnerability of Jesus. Remember who He's speaking to. He's speaking to tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees. He's speaking in regard to the Pharisees, to His mortal enemies, men that He knows will eventually kill Him. On one hand, this is an astonishingly bold challenge to His enemies. He's talking to those who want to kill them, and He's telling them that they want to kill Him, and He's telling them, you're the ones that's lost. This is why they killed Him. They fundamentally misunderstood God's salvation and purpose in the world, and they are trampling on the heart of God. That's the message of the parable. He loves you. But there, he's challenging the way they thought. He's challenging the way they believed. But understand the tenderness of that challenge. The father went out of the house for them, just like he went out of the house for the alienated younger son. And the fact that he is challenging them, wrapped in that challenge, is a plea. You cannot be your own savior. You are good moral people, but your motives are wrong. You're doing it the wrong way. You need to quit trying and start trusting. Know that He did for us. Knowing what He did for us will drain us of our self-righteousness and our security. We're so sinful that He had to die for us, but He loved us so much. He was glad to die for us. And that takes away both our pride and our fear that makes us elder brothers. Luke 4, 18, 14 says, The humble are in, but the proud are out. Psalm 138 and 6 says, The Lord cares for the humble, but He keeps His distance from the proud. The prerequisite to receiving grace is to know that you need it. My heart this morning, beginning with my own life, is that God will help this church understand the gospel. So that our service to the King of kings and the Lord of lords will be for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he says, carry this stone, it won't be because the reward we feel like we're going to get at the end of the day. It'll be because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords said, carry this stone. Service, worship, love. I want the Holy Spirit to grip our hearts this morning. I want want you to let God search your heart this morning. You know, today there may be some younger brothers here that need to come back to Christ. And if you want to come to Jesus today, that's what I'm asking you to do. 
I'm asking you to come to Jesus today. I'm asking you to to let Him take you just like you are and your love and grace, your love towards Him will eventually begin to change your life. There will be visible changes on the outside. My heart this morning, every week it has been for the guys at this end of the table, the gals at this end of the table. My heart this morning is for, I guess in the same way the father left the house to go plead with the elder brother as the pastor this morning, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I'm guilty here. I've been here. I just believe that we can't go where we need to go as a church until we understand this message. Until we get the gospel. And when the Holy Spirit deals with us to repent this morning, let's not assume He's talking to somebody now. Let's ask Him. Have my motives been wrong? I served you for all the wrong reasons. God, has has this been my own self-salvation project? I tried to earn your love when it's been there all the time. Instead of trying, I need to trust. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? This morning I I woke up praying, God, save me from myself. Save me from myself. My altar call this morning will be very simple. I will tell you this immediately. There will be no benediction to this service today. I'm not going to come up and say, thank you for being here. I'm not going to dismiss and say you may all go I, like Jesus ended the parable rather open ended with the brother standing outside but with an invitation to come to the table I leave this kind of open ended today there's a seat at the table of salvation for all of us but we have to accept the father's invitation to grace a salvation we cannot earn on our own I understand the gospel of grace. But my default mode is to go back and earn it. And I want God to help me trust Him. And I really believe He's dealing with the hearts of a lot of people in this room today. And this altar this morning is simply going to be open for people to come and pray. Elder brothers, younger brothers, Just hear the Spirit of God calling them to the table of salvation. It's not in running. It's in resting. Have you trusted God with your eternity? Father, I pray this morning. Will you talk to the religious and the irreligious alike? The moral and the immoral alike? And teach us the gospel. Supernaturally speak to our hearts and change us from the inside out, God. I pray this morning when people respond to this altar, 
And those that carry this with them out the door, will you let it be a lingering aroma in their hearts that brings real life change? Change the heart of this church from the inside out. Beginning with one person at a time. Overwhelm us with your love. And may we obey because we've been so filled with your love. Would you stand to your feet all over this place? And if the Holy Spirit is calling you to an altar this morning, would you respond today?